We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as per usual, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. Uh, and also in studio with us today, we uh, are lucky to have back on the show frequent contributor Jane Rickards. Uh, she is a freelance reporter here in Taiwan and the former president of the Taiwan Foreign Correspondence Club. Jane, uh, glad Good to have evening. you back. Good evening, Kate. <laughs> and also with us today, uh, we have first-time contributor Jason Pan of the Taipei Times. Uh, if you've ever read the Taipei Times, you've certainly seen his byline. It uh, probably comes up more than once a day. Uh, Jason, really happy to have you on the show. Good evening. Uh, very happy to be here. Glad to have you here. On the show today, ride-hailing app Uber has been banned from the streets of Taiwan. Uh, wait, no it hasn't, but it's still illegal or something. Well, we'll sort through the mess uh, of statements we've been getting this week uh, from regulators in just a little bit. Then we'll talk about another issue where there's been a bit of confused messaging coming from the government. The much-vaunted 40-hour work week, uh, set to go into effect Monday, has been delayed. And groups on all sides of the labor fight seem to be a bit unhappy about that. Then we got a whirlwind uh, political roundup, uh, so we're going to speed on through a couple of political stories that came up this week. And then in the second half, President Tsai Ing-wen delivered an historic official apology to Taiwan's aboriginal peoples this Monday. But this ceremony was marked by criticism and sometimes dramatic scenes of protest. We'll discuss what Tsai said and how it's being received. But first, uh, we are coming up fast on the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. Woo! Exciting times! Exciting! But, 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 before the Games have even started, Chinese Taipei Olympic Committee has found itself engulfed in controversy after Taiwan's star tennis player said she's not going to play, Gavin. Yeah, Xie Su Wei pulled out officially of the Olympic Games squad this Thursday, and she did it via Facebook. There you go. Facebook. Yet again, Facebook. Someone does something via Facebook. <laughs> anyway, she went to her Facebook and said, as of today, that being Thursday, I'm retired from tennis in Taiwan. And she went on to say that she will never be drafted to become a player on the national team again. Mm. According to Xie Su Wei, she felt forced to take this action after an official with the Olympic Committee banged a table and shouted at her, apparently, after they were having a discussion. Mm-hmm. In, obviously, they're in Rio at the moment. And she didn't like the fact that this chap, Tsai Tzu-Jie, he's the deputy head of Taiwan's delegation at the Rio Games, apparently accused her of getting a bit uppity mm-hmm. because... Che Su Wei had asked for her brother to be included in the delegation and her brother is a bit of a tennis coach mm-hmm. so she was after a coach and she wanted her brother to be the coach she, the Taiwan Olympic delegation did denied this so she got to Rio and said well you know other people have coaches where's my coach and apparently the official banged on the table and well she mm. was rather upset and she stormed out and said well that's it I'm not going to play tennis for you ever again now this led to another can of worms which opened up as well over funding mm-hmm. now she said that she, she didn't receive she any she said that the state didn't fund her well her well, professional career her, her professional career she said the state hasn't funded her enough since she turned pro mm-hmm. well the, the local sports administration has disputed this somewhat, saying that since 
2002, she has received nearly 27 million NT in cash awards and subsidies. These these subsidies and cash awards include winning competitions. Mm-hmm. You know, doing well in competitions. The state in Taiwan gives certain sports people money. Mm-hmm. The Sports Federation came out and well, they well, basically said we did give her money. She said they didn't. They said she did. The argument continues. Mm. But, of course, this has put a bit of a damper on things because, of course, Taiwan's sports associations, be they tennis, soccer, golf or even bowling, have always been a bit of a... There's always been a bit of controversy around sports federations here, of course. And having dealt with them over the years... They can be rather pig-headed, I think is the mm. phrase, because they, they come out with things that you look at and go, well, why did they do that? Mm. This has, to, has nothing to do with the sport. Well, I mean, Jason as well, of course, has covered sports and seen this firsthand. Yeah, Jason, I mean, I feel like there's kind of two ways to look at this. Uh, some people are coming out and saying, you know, she is Hu Wei, she's Taiwan's star player. If she wants a coach, just give her a coach. Other people are saying, you know, the Olympics is all about uh, serving the country, uh, showing that uh, Taiwan is... Uh, exceptional, and she should put away, you know, little considerations for the good of the games. Uh, what do you see here? What do you make of all this? Well, uh, sh- this news is uh, really a big headline news. It stirs up a lot of debate on mm-hmm. the uh, online community and netizens and headline news uh, today. And uh, there's a lot of uh, fireworks back and forth. Even in Taiwan here, Xie's father uh, even, you know, talked to the press and basically he condemned and you know, talk a lot about how she is being treated unfair, mm-hmm. unfairly by the sports council. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole the thing is, uh, we, we cover, people who cover sports knows that Taiwan sports council they yeah pigheaded <laughs> is for one thing. Number two is that they tend to just enjoy all the perks and privileges going to the big games, you mm-hmm. know, on uh, uh, business class. Uh, uh, you know, air, airplane, air flight. Mm-hmm. But the athletes are working and toiling and labeling, mm. and they seem to be getting, uh, you know, not not so well treated. Um, the whole thing is a bit of a, a big problem for athletes because right now everybody's supposed to be pulling together for the nation in the exactly. Olympics, and this become this thing blows up and it, it affects the whole uh, uh, sports community. Mm-hmm. And uh, if people, you know, looking at in the news and uh, on the Website, there's a lot of discussion, but majority of netizen and uh, Taiwan public seems to uh, support Xie's uh, decision because they say um, the sports council needs reform. Well, the, the sports administration has come out and said it plans to convene a meeting of experts to discuss ways to reform the system of forming a national sports team after the Rio Olympics. But this this is deja vu. We've heard this every four years, every two years, every year they come out with this stuff. I remember many years ago, Jason was there and saw it. They wanted to develop soccer in Taiwan. Oh, they came along and said, let's put loads of money into soccer in Taiwan. And what happened? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Definitely... 12 hours ahead of uh, the Olympics uh, opening ceremonies is not the time when you're supposed to be announcing new commissions and new studies and new groups to look at problems. That's bad timing, to be sure. Bad and also, there was, a, there was an incident, of course, two weeks ago when Cher Su Wei, of course, she was, gonna, uh, she was originally slated to uh, compete in the women's doubles and the women's singles. And two weeks ago, she pulled out of the women's doubles. And this was because a local member of the... This was the Tennis Association guy here basically said that she was the lowest ranked of the five local tennis players going to the Olympic Games. She didn't like that too much. Well, no, I mean, she's won... She won the 
2013 Wimbledon doubles and the 2014 French Open doubles. I mean, you know, you can't. Someone that does that is not a slouch, and yeah. they're certainly not the worst person on the team that can go. Mm. All right. Well, uh, the it sounds like the Olympic Committee is still hoping that she'll play. She she did not miss words. I mean, it, she was very unambiguous when she said she wasn't gonna. But uh, Saturday tomorrow, t- well, this goes out Friday, and Saturday the Olympic tennis draw mm. is picked. Uh, just uh, what I h- heard before coming, the the news says that she has decided already to uh, a uh, not not to play all mm-hmm. all the events. She quit right now, and she signed on the whatever the form. So mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, hard to go back. So yeah. her name won't be on the list tomorrow, then, will it? Yep, that's apparently the worst. And uh, it, it's it's a as uh, Gavin said, it's it's Taiwan sports. Uh, it's really uh, a big mess, and mm. they they need to reform. There's a lot of problem, and uh, that's that's exactly what uh, I I thought also that you know oh another uh, commission another uh, you know uh, convening of uh, expert. I I have heard of this you know so many times, and it's it's another waste of money. <laughs> mm. All right. So uh, certainly not the conversation we're supposed to be having on the uh, eve of these Olympic Games. But uh, there we are. There we are. We're going to leave that story for now. Uh, and we'll just have to uh, wait and see over the next couple of days if uh, maybe some other sport can raise our patriotic spirits. Who knows? Maybe uh, weightlifting. I hear weightlifting is supposed to be good this year. So maybe we'll get lucky with some weightlifting. Up next, though, uh, it is time to talk about the sharing economy app that's causing headaches for Taiwan's regulators. How big are those headaches? You could say they are uber big. You could say that. You could say that. But that would be an extremely dumb joke. Uh, Let's talk about Uber. A lot happened this week. Uh, First, we heard the Ministry of Economic Affairs was getting ready to revoke Uber's operating license, uh, presumably shutting down operations for good of the app. Uh, but then the cabinet said it's going to try and find a way to legalize the app. I guess uh, basically find some set of regulations that would put everybody in the taxi industry on kind of an even keel, an even playing field. Uh, but the Ministry of Transportation is still insisting the app is illegal and it is still considering revoking the license. So it's kind of hard to uh, make a clear sense of what exactly is going on, what direction the government is trying to push in uh, for Uber. Uh, Gavin, uh, what, what? What happened? Here we go. Headline Wednesday. The Investment Commission says it will revoke Uber's operating license in the coming weeks due to the license being used for purposes other than the business for which it was issued. Let's fast forward a couple of days. Let's go 24 hours later. Headline, the government is seeking measures to help app-based ride-sharing service provider Uber operate legally in Taiwan. Kind of a... A mixed message. Mixed message. (laughs) I think we could call it that, yeah. A little confusing, a little confusing. And and, and, and so what's the rationale that's being given here? The rationale is they're thinking of legalising it and they're going to amend... Or the cabinet has said it plans to seek ways to amend relevant regulations in order to allow it to be legalised... As a taxi company. Now, a couple of, was it last year? I believe it was last year, the government, the previous government, started to talk about a multiple taxi project. This mm. plan involved allowing taxis not to be all yellow, mm-hmm. allowing taxi mm-hmm. companies to basically deregulate the pricing. Mm-hmm. 
And there's, but there was something else as well. It was yellow taxes, deregulate the pricing. And they also turned around and said, we're going to help. The government will help private taxi companies develop online systems so people can get apps and order their taxis, right. be they Uber, Mr. Wong's taxi, <laughs> or whoever's taxi company on a mobile phone. Right. So that may be the direction that they're talking about here. But still, I mean, it very really feels like they're just kind of figuring it out as they go. Uh, we're scratching our heads. Uh, uh, Gavin, uh, uh, it looks like taxi drivers are also scratching their heads. Well, taxi drivers unions and taxi drivers groups have been protesting. Of course, this is another first, and we've talked about this before. Of course, when they was they parked outside the legislature several weeks ago. I mean, they they kind of promised a work stoppage. Well, they did promise a work stoppage. That would cause a lot of problems because, of course, the buses would be full, or people would have to take buses. And of course, this is how I get to work. Well, the, the problem is, of course, taxi prices in northern Taiwan. Taxi prices, in fact, island wide, went up this year. Mm-hmm. Last year and this year, last year in the northern Taiwan, and earlier this year in the central part of the island. And it, you know, if you're going a short distance in a regular yellow taxi, okay, the extra money doesn't really make that much of a difference. But if you're going any length of time and a distance, you do actually end up paying a lot more. Mm-hmm. And of course, taxi drivers are concerned that they're already losing customers because of this, and they are concerned that Uber is going to take more of their business, or it is taking more of their business, because yeah. there's been allegations that it's taken between twenty and thirty percent of their business since it was operating, mm. twenty fourteen, September twenty fourteen. So we can started. we can understand why they are afraid. Uh, Jane, well, what do you make of all this? Well, um, Gavin just highlighted one aspect of this is pressure from domestic taxi drivers, but on the other hand, this issue highlights the need for the broader picture, the need for regulatory reform and opening up to foreign investment, which is one of the Tsai administration's key goals. It raises questions, for example, why should taxi driving companies be limited to local companies? Why can't foreign companies enter in? Um, Is the regulatory scope sufficient to encompass this very modern form of ride sharing? Mm. You know, does it have to be an IT platform or a taxi driving service, but it can't be both? Mm-hmm. So it highlights the fact that Taiwan's regulations need to move with innovation. And I think that's what's concerning the government. And that's why we keep seeing all these flip-flops. Because on one hand, I think the transportation ministry is being very old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. And um, also there's need to sort of protect the jobs of taxi drivers. But on the other hand, I think the people at the top have this sort of picture that they want to, Taiwan to appear innovation-friendly. Mm-hmm. And so booting out this app service. Yeah. Um, the government is saying the uh, Uber is sort of an underground operation. They cannot collect tax. That's one thing. And also they try, they now want to legalise it because they said uh, we don't want to be seen as like we don't like foreign investment. They would like mm-hmm. to see open, you know, economy. Um, on the other hand, you know, taxi driver they they used to be very active political uh, in a in a old uh, protest and mm-hmm. KMT day. So they are a big political force in the transportation sector. They also have very powerful things. Right. So it's it's uh, it's quite interesting to see how how it uh, develop in you know, coming days. Right. So we got a rock and a hard place that the government finds itself between. Lots of uh, countervailing pressures. Uh, And if that looked like a policy flip-flop, this next one looks like a somersault. Uh, Maybe flapjacks going over. I don't know. There was lots of flipping. That's the point. The government's much-anticipated and very controversial 40-hour work week, uh, the one that came along with the six-day maximum work week, the one where we introduced the one-fixed, one-flexible day-off policy, that one, that was supposed to go into effect this week, but it did not. Gavin, what happened? It went away. Mm. As if by magic, somebody waved a wand and went poof. 
Uh, nothing's changed. You just work as normal because we don't really know whether we want you to work five days, six days or seven days. And if you have to work five days, do you get an extra day on the six day working? And will you get bonuses and overtime and an extra holiday for that? It's all a bit of a mess, to be honest with you. And Jane Ricards is going to tell us all about it and why it's a mess. Well, um, it's unclear whether the, what the government's official line is it's trying to blame it on the wording of the law. Um, for example, the Labor Standards Act, Article 36, stipulates that workers have the right to take a day off. Oh, yeah, that the Article 36, of course, yes. Yeah. That one. You haven't asked me to explain it. So. <laughs> <laughs> ah, right, okay. but it doesn't clearly specify if workers are permitted to work more than six days in a row. Then the Interior Ministry in 1986 published an interpretation of this that permitted weekly holidays to be moved over to following weeks. In other words, workers can work more than six days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the government, what the official story is, the Labor Minister says that um, they're trying to work out how to reformulate the laws to publish a new interpretation of Article 36. In other words, they can't. They're saying they can't just revoke the interpretation in 1986. They have to come up with a new sort of formulation. Mm. For, sorry. New. So they're, they're kind of caught in that old regulatory framework, and they they can't just change things willy nilly. Yes, that's right. But what throws me about this, we all. Three of us in this, Jason, Jane and me, all remember many years ago, they did change it. They changed the labour law to one week you would work six days and the week after you would work five days. Now, they managed to get rid of that without any problem at all. Right, so, so, so why, why is the Thai administration finding it so hard to manoeuvre? It seems like every time they announce something new, somebody screams, that's not going to work, uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to tank our whole industry. Uh, of course, this whole week we've been hearing uh, that three industries in particular are going to have a hard time with this, uh, media, Tourism, ah, media, that's us, mm. uh, tourism and uh, public transport sectors. They're all saying, you know, if we had to stick with this, uh, the way that our industries work, just we wouldn't be able to cope uh, with, uh, you know, all, all the time needing to get uh, one day off a week. Uh, so so why is the Thai administration finding it so hard to maneuver here? Um, well, Taiwan's a very divided society and obviously they're different competing interests um, because the DPP is traditionally seen as a party that represents workers' rights, Mm. needs to be seen to be standing with the workers. On the other hand, they're getting all this pressure from, as you mentioned, travel agents and media companies. And um, I think the question is, um, is Tsai when willing to make firm decisions? Mm. And, uh, well, that's, that's, that's the big question. I think a lot of people are saying uh, mm-hmm. she's just kind of following political pressure and uh, whatever, wherever the winds are blowing that day, that's, you know, the way that she goes. Uh, what is your take? I mean, of course, uh, in the Ma administration, uh, we were introduced to the uh, lovely phrase Ma the Bumbler uh, for much the same reason. He was kind of uh, bouncing around on policies, not staying firm and saying this is right and this is where we're going. Are we seeing much the same thing with Tsai? Are we going to be hearing about Tsai the Bumbler anytime soon? Well, I mean, it's far too early and it's too early to tell if she's flip-flopping, but there are other signs that she might be flip-flopping. For example, with energy, um, the DPP has a goal of establishing a nuclear-free homeland by 20. 2025 and hasn't come up with clear plans for replacing nuclear energy, which stands at 17% of the island's power supply. Mm-hmm. Now, in June, Premier Lin Chuen floated restarting the shuttered nuclear reactor, the Jinshan nuclear reactor, and he was met with very strong opposition, so he had to back away from it. Mm. 
and the electricity reserve margins have dropped to dangerous lows this year. Like in May 31st, they were down at 1.65%. And that mm-hmm. was because there were sort of faults at two of the coal plants. And what an expert told me is actually that the, at the nuclear reactors, the emergency reactors have been turned on because mm. otherwise the electricity supply would be insufficient. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so we're, we're riding that fine line. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I better turn my air conditioning off before I come to work. <laughs> yeah, um... This whole work, uh, this uh, regulation is so complicated, even I don't understand it. Yeah. But the media is being affected. So I, I was at the uh, uh, journalists and uh, uh, there's a protest, the mm. media worker protest earlier this week. I was there mm. and uh, I was talking to the police. You know, they said, oh, this is the biggest media crowd here and they're covering uh, their own uh, people. It was mm. a big crowd. Oh, there's a... I counted about 20 different uh, cameras and mm-hmm. a lot of journalists there. And so media people are finally mobilized to fight for their own rights because uh, I'm uh, working in media for long, many years, so I know we're overworked, but we have to fight for our rights. And instead of just uh, oh, what boss says we do. So it's a new era for Taiwan to, you know, fighting for your uh, deserve uh, uh, rights. And uh, Taiwan, we I truly believe we should not be working so hard and have some quality time off. Mm. How many days a week do you work now? Um, since this year starting, pre, uh, we now have actually two, two days off. Uh, the, but this is the Taipei Times with the Liberty Group. But before last year, I worked at Taipei Times for about five, six years. We only got alternate week, like one one day off, and the next week we got two days off. So the famous alternative week. Yeah, yes. alternative week. Oh, so. it's keeping it alive. I used to annoy me because I used to turn up for work on a day I shouldn't be there because I'd always forget where I was meant to be in the office <laughs> or not. Uh, well, uh, we are very glad that uh, even overworked media folks like you managed to come in on this uh, Friday evening. So uh, we, we thank you for that. Uh, thank you for making that sacrifice. Mm. All right. Well, uh, that is just a, a, a whole wrinkly mess that uh, I'm, I'm assuming is going to stick with us for a while. So we're going to have more stuff to say about it very soon. Uh, maybe we'll get be getting more days off so we can be more rested for these shows uh, and even more, you know, uh, silken voiced and uh, insightful. That's uh, that's what we can hope for. Uh, but for now, uh, seeing as we are, you know, overworked and tired, we're, we're, we're just going to pound through the next couple of stories as fast as we can to cut down on that workload. Uh, we have just so many stories to get through today. Uh, the, the, this next couple, we're just going to treat it like a lightning round uh, and uh, just kind of jam it out as fast as we can. Uh, first up, we're going to uh, head back to Vietnam and the controversy surrounding the Formosa Plastics Group Steel Mill. Uh, that is, of course, the steel mill and uh, the group that has admitted to causing a massive fish die-off off the coast of Vietnam. We've discussed this before on the show. Uh, but this whole controversy came back into the headlines this week when one DPP lawmaker made it her business to check up on the plant. Uh, and, well, Gavin, she did not quite receive a hero's welcome on her arrival. No, shock horror. On Tuesday of this week, DPP lawmaker Su Fun was detained for nine hours at mm. Hanoi International Airport, where authorities confiscated her passport and refused to issue her a boarding card. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say detained, she wasn't, like, arrested at the airport. She was held up. She, yeah, she wasn't held at gunpoint with AK-47s. <laughs> it was not that type of detention. Not that kind of hold-up, either. <clears throat> no, she was just held up at the airport. Now... 
She was actually travelling, like you said, Keith, to the Formosa Plastics Group steel plant, which is owned by a subsidiary of Formosa Plastics. And, of course, this is the Formosa Group's plant that was accused of killing all the fish recently across, like, three or four Vietnamese provinces. Now, she was also there to be in Vietnam as part of the government's new southbound policy. Mm-hmm. She was obviously the government is seeking investment opportunities in Vietnam. Now, when this happened on Tuesday, there was great a great barahu here in Taiwan about what happened. No, not again, because it was this came a week after a Chinese national was in Vietnam and they had an expletive stamped in their passport by a Vietnamese customs official. It's a tense relationship right which now, which started the ball rolling here mm-hmm. with people going, "Oh no, they're accusing us of being part of China. Is this a, is this a big Vietnamese move to say go away Taiwan and China?" Well, it transpired that it wasn't because she came back from Vietnam on Thursday and faced the press. Where, what happened? You were detained. Were they? What was going on? And she simply explained that the incident was due to the fact that there was a problem. The problem was best explained by the head of the Vietnam Economic and Cultural Office in Taipei, however, who simply said that Sue violated Vietnamese regulations which bar foreign nationals who enter the country on a tourist visa through a travel agency from going on trips that are not included in their itinerary. I find this absolutely daft that someone who went to a country on a, for working for a government got their visa through a travel agency. Right. Well, uh, she gave a little bit of a different account. Uh, I think that uh, legislator Sue would uh, contest that somewhat. I mean, she said that, uh, first of all, she was followed around by uh, what she called plain clothed uh, police officers the whole time. So she felt like she was under surveillance. Uh, And she also said that she had never been told that there was a requirement that she make an itinerary. Uh, So uh, I think from her perspective, kind of what she's getting at is uh, her trip faced uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, scrutiny from Vietnam's government. Perhaps uh, because, you know, she was checking in on uh, that steel mill. uh, And that's a project that uh, Vietnam's government has been uh, very keen to see move forward. So I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell what happened. I'm sure it'll come out in the weeks to come. Uh, I'm sure it will, as many of these stories uh, are wont to do. Well, while we are waiting... uh for that story to come out in the weeks to come, we got another story that we're going to just jam on right through. That being the uh, flotilla of fishing boats uh, that we heard about a couple weeks ago that went to Taiping Island in the wake of the South China Sea Hague ruling. Uh, well, they made it to the island, as we discussed last week. Then they made it back to Taiwan, uh, I think around about Monday, Sunday, around that time. Uh, the story is still uh, quite revealing of, you know, the very sharp political fault lines in Taiwan, uh, how you feel about that ruling, how you feel about Taiping Island, says a lot about your political persuasions. Uh, and once again, uh, this group actually did receive a hero's welcome uh, from some when they returned home. Uh, but from the government, they may be uh, receiving fines, Gavin. Yeah, the fisheries agency wasn't too happy about these. Five fishing boats left Taiwan, left Pingdong to go there. One had to turn around because it had engine problems or some kind of technical problem. Four fishing boats trotted off to Taiping Island. One of them couldn't dock because there was three Hong Kong nationals on the boat and they weren't allowed to dock there or set foot on the island. And the other three boats did manage to dock on Taiping Island. Now, this 
irked the fisheries agency somewhat and said, hey, look, you boat owners could face fines of between 30,000 and 150,000 NT or having your operating licences revoked for landing and going into waters near Taiping Island without prior arrangement because, of course, Taiping Island is considered a military installation. That's what the fisheries agency said. Now, the Council of Agriculture said in the same day, in fact, they are still reviewing whether or not to fine the fishermen. So I mm. guess another thing we have to find out. But, <laughs> but what we... There's um, so many reviews going so on right now. So many things to find out this week. We also, what we have to find out about a bunch of old soldiers. Old soldiers. Oh, former soldiers. That's, that's, that's not, not the way that's to not, put it. That's, that's not, not polite. Let's just call them but former soldiers. Former soldiers. Veterans. They're, veterans they're, even. Veterans. There you go. They're applying to go to Taiping Island now to hold a parade. Mm. Now, the Ministry of Defence says it's reviewing their application to go there. Mm. But one person who's not going there, though, we know this for sure, is the head of the KMT, Hong mm-hmm. Shouju, who had her application to travel to Taiping Island rejected on the grounds that she's not an elected official. All right. So the Thai administration on the hot seat with many uh, accusing her of being too soft on the Taiping Island issue. Uh, now, is she going to say no to veterans? Uh, we will find out very, 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 very quickly before we get to the break. Uh, Gavin, the latest on the uh, party assets issue. Uh, the KMT, of course, uh, pledged that they were going to get a, uh, a ruling from the Constitutional Court. Uh, but in order to get such a ruling, you need a certain number of votes. They don't have enough votes if it's just KMT lawmakers voting. So they were calling on the People's First Party to back them up, and they were uh, turned down. Uh, and uh, Gavin's shaking his head, so we're going to turn this over to Jane. Um, I've just got two comments. The first comment is, which might be extremely obvious. I don't think this is related to James Sung being one of the potential heads of the semi-negotiating agency with China, the Straits Exchange Foundation. That was one of the allegations that came up this week, that it was kind of uh, almost horse trading sort of situation. I I just really think that's a media beat-up. I think um, Tsai Ing-wen spoke to Sung, I think, before she took office on May 20th, and I think Mm. she's had adequate time to communicate with him, and if he was willing to do that, he'd be there by now. He'd be Mm -hmm. in the post. Mm. And my second comment is, which is also obvious, is that I think the PFP stance instead reflects that there's a very broad consensus in society about the KMT needs to return its stolen assets. I think this has gone beyond a deep green issue or a new power party issue, and I think this is just spreading to the centre and even to the right of Taiwanese politics. Mm. And that's how I interpret the PFP stance. All righty. So uh, we're going to have to leave that topic there. If it uh, didn't make any sense to our fair listeners out there, fear not. Uh, It's going to come up again next week so we can uh, explain it again in more depth uh, in the future, no doubt. All right. That is it for the first half of the show. When we return, uh, we are dedicating the whole second half to the Thai administration's apology issued to Taiwan's Aboriginal peoples. Some are touting the event as an historic step toward national reconciliation, while others say without concrete action, the apology was a whole lot of nothing. We'll take a look at both sides when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Jane Rickards, and Jason Pan. All right, as promised, we are dedicating this whole second half to an in-depth discussion about President Tsai's apology to Taiwan's Aboriginal peoples for past historical wrongs. 
Uh, Jason, uh, we are very glad to have you on the show today because uh, in, in your capacity as a journalist in Taiwan, uh, you've uh, given quite a bit of coverage to uh, this set of issues. Uh, but in addition to that, I mean, it touches on uh, you personally, right? <laughs> uh, I've been active in the uh, Aboriginal rights issue and um uh, my family actually part of the uh, the Plain Aboriginal tribe and uh, mm. descendant of it. So I, uh, this sort of affects me personally. But but I mean, as a journalist, I have a, a different uh, perspective on this. So mm. I've been uh, more or less following this for the last few decades. Yeah. Right. So uh, we'll be looking forward to your insights in just a second. Uh, but uh, first, let's just set up the main events of the week. Uh, the Apology itself came on Monday, but even before the apology occurred, uh, there were a number of protests that occurred outside of the presidential office. Uh, I think this started two days before uh, the apology was even delivered. Uh, And uh, Jason, I understand that you were there? Yes. um, Actually, the protests, or what you call, you you might call demonstration or Mm -hmm. sit-in, they actually started... A few weeks ago, there's mm-hmm. actually a group of Aboriginal youth who started mm-hmm. walking toward Taipei right. from the southern end of Taiwan, the Hunchuan mm-hmm. Peninsula, and they start walking. I think there was also a separate uh, group who walked from Hualien, Taitung area to mm-hmm. Taipei. So and they were really looking forward because this this apology has been uh, really been uh, sort of uh, people look forward to. And mm-hmm. in in in, in in actual fact, it, it raised Taiwan profile because it's the first time an in Asian nation a leader Tsai mm-hmm. Ing-wen actually apologized to the Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, it, it received a lot of international press this week. Yeah. On the other hand, you see the protests. There was images on TV and also uh, press coverage. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, people say, well, that's not enough. It's all for a show. But there are other people saying, oh, she's done quite a lot. It's much mm-hmm. more than what KMT has. KMT has actually uh, the party who instilled a lot of these bad policies of uh, you know, eroding uh, uh, Aboriginal culture and not mm-hmm. allowing Aboriginal people uh, the name and uh, the geographic places to be used in, in the original names. Mm. Uh, KMT is the one. So some question were asking, well, DPP, Tsai uh, uh, doesn't have to apologize because it's in the past and it's a new government. But however, as a leader uh, mm-hmm. right now of the uh, president of the nation, I think she what she done has been quite uh, on the balance, very, very uh, Good image, but then we'll see if the the DPP government will have policy or real reform instead of just a piece of paper, a sort mm-hmm. of a media show. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. So uh, clearly, a lot of perspectives on this issue. Uh, getting back to those protests, I mean, if if you've seen the images of them, some of them, I mean, there were there were actual clashes with police. There was a little bit of tussling going on. So, uh, for, for for many who were watching this, uh, I I think for a lot of people that did sort of mar. Uh, the apology and the ceremony itself, but let's move up to that ceremony. Uh, Gavin, there was uh, there was a little bit of pomp and circumstance going on. There was a little bit of pomp and circumstance, and a lot of questions about it was very hot and there was no mm. shade. Uh, and of course, a lot of elderly members of the Aboriginal community in big, attendance. Well, they were they were. Uh, we'll get to that, shall we? Should we we'll start at the beginning? Alrighty. Now, on Monday, the uh, representatives of sixteen of Taiwan's recognised Aboriginal tribes gathered outside the presidential building, and that happened to coincide with Indigenous Peoples Day. 
fell mm-hmm. on this past Monday. Now, tribal members burned millet stalks in front of the building as part of a ceremony during which apparently they were calling on their ancestral spirits to join them in this great apology. Now, Tsai, President Tsai Ing-wen, went outside of the building and she greeted the representatives from each of the tribes at the main door of the presidential office and then invited them in to take it. She, she, was, she basically said her government wished to take a further step and offer a full apology. And then they were all sort of led into the presidential building itself. Mm. So that was the actual outside ceremony. Right. And uh, so then, uh, ceremony over, Tsai uh, says a few words. She said a few words, um, which I think, Jane, do you want to tell us what she said? Well, she demanded a report on policymaking about the story of... She demanded a report on the storage of radioactive waste on Orchid Island. Mm-hmm. Very significant there. Yes, and which is home to the Tao. Am I saying it right, Jason? The Tao? Tao people. Tao, sorry. Oh, the Tao Aboriginal tribe. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they, they, they say that the, the, the nuclear waste dump uh, was put there without their knowledge. Uh, and so that's been a long-standing grievance going all the way back to the 80s right there. Yeah, and she also announced the establishment of a, of a commission for historical and transitional justice underneath the presidential office, which she is going to head. Mm-hmm. And the commission has promised to hold discussions with representatives of Aboriginal communities on issues such as national policies towards Aborigines. Mm-hmm. And she also said that the cabinet would step up the pace of the basic law. My understanding is that, um, tell me if I'm wrong, Jason, is that the basic law was passed in 2005 by the Maher administration mm-hmm. and that protects the rights of Aborigines, but it's just a framework law. Mm-hmm. So it's, virtu- it's just virtually ineffective because pretty- the details haven't, the sort of sub-subordinate mm-hmm. laws haven't been worked out. So basically pledging to flesh that out a little no. bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. So she said she'd step up the pace and submit for legislation three mm-hmm. sub-laws um, the Indigenous Peoples Self-Government Law, the Indigenous Peoples Land and Sea Areas Law, and the Indigenous Languages Development Law. All right. So uh, a lot of pledges there uh, w- w- was what we were hearing. Uh, we also heard a lot of acknowledgement of you know past historical wrongs. But uh, following very quickly, I mean, I, I think there were portions of that that uh, a lot of observers were kind of surprised to hear. I heard a lot of people saying that they weren't expecting to hear anything mm-hmm. about the Orchid Island uh, issue just because it is so sensitive uh, to deal with and a, such a thorny issue. Um, but, uh, Jason, maybe you can uh, cover this a little bit. Uh, there is a, really a list of things that those protesters mm-hmm. were saying they wanted to hear and they didn't hear. Uh, so uh, give, us a, give us a sense of that. Okay, um, the uh, Chai's apology and her uh, address actually uh, give a lot of goodwill to Aborigines mm-hmm. in that the Taiwan nation will acknowledge the past wrongs. Um, even though the whole history goes way back, there was also the Dutch colonial era, mm-hmm. Japanese colonial era, and the Qing dynasty, of course, and uh, then also, of course, uh, KMT who came after, you know. And that's part of why Tsai was so yeah. careful not to specify which governments right. had committed right. any of these historical wrongs. Yeah. So the whole thing is actually still very controversy. And uh, the whole Taiwan society is actually split many ways. Some people say as, you don't have to apologize. And other people, the protester in front, some Aboriginal groups, they, uh, they are being uh, polarized by political forces like KMT. Other. They say they, Tsai Ing-wen did not go it far enough. They right. want the implementation of Aboriginal basic law, and they also want the autonomy. They want the, real autonomy. Yeah. That, that, that seems like the biggest issue. That's, that's really problematic because mm-hmm. uh, the indigenous basic law 
it is like a blanket coverage, but it also affects a lot of overlapping jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. There, there are you know um, government agency responsible for the uh, water dams, re- uh, reservoirs, and also you know forestry, also for tourism development. Mm. So, a lot I know a lot of business and also tourism industry and even government official, the bureaucrats are resisting any reform, open up to uh, Aboriginal you know say land the whole land ownership. To return because some Aboriginal group actually demand to return all their so-called uh, traditional territory. Mm. How it could be done, you know, uh, that's that's really difficult because Taiwan is a small island. It's right. a crowded. It's not like say we're not like U.S. or Australia or Canada, a lot of land. Mm-hmm. But most significantly for me and uh, many friends is that she actually promised to. Uh, had the legal mechanism get started to recognize the. Plain Aborigines, the Pingpu people, the mm. Pingpu Zhuqin of Taiwan. I think that's very significant. So mm. I was actually invited to a couple of conference right afterwards in a few days. And the experts and couple of activists, they said, from her promise, a lot of things might be a long time, take a long time. But the two that might be possible to be, could be done is actually the one, the Oakland Island, mm-hmm. the uh, nuclear waste. Yeah. That could be solved somehow or... The, to remove from the mm-hmm. Oakland Island right. it would be radioactive pollution. The other one is actually the real recognition of the uh, lowland Aborigine, the Pingpu people. Right. Because that, that would really signify that, you know, she'll acknowledge the history of Pingpu people being yeah. uh, lost their land and they right. still don't have any legal status. But if, They're not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's very possible these two could be right. done. Right. A lot of people argue that there's just this arbitrary distinction between uh, mountain aboriginals and plain aboriginals. Right. And uh, so it kind of overlooks big groups of people that, you know, have had a very similar historical experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of other things that uh, I think these protesters uh, wanted to see that they didn't see uh, would be the, you know, they wanted some more recognition of the economic disparity and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, ways to address that, uh, educational disparity and ways uh, to address that. A really important one, though, that we heard a lot about this week would be hunting rights uh, and and people saying that, you know, the the uh, desire among uh, Aboriginal communities to continue their traditional practices of hunting is very important to them. Uh, but still, there uh, many are, are getting prosecuted uh, for carrying out what are now illegal hunts. Uh, and so that, that's a very uh, important issue, a very emotional issue. Um, Jason, maybe you could uh, explain a little bit, uh, give us some background on uh, where the context here. This this one is also a potentially source of source of a conflict uh, because the uh, the uh, the right to hunt the Aboriginal culture over the world, including Taiwan, has mm. uh, been part of the culture. However, now it's a modern history nation with economic development. The uh, you also face up against the environmental groups and uh, uh, animal conservation groups, wildlife. There are not too many of them, and mm. and a lot of illegal hunting does going on in in Taiwan in the mountains. Mm. The other thing is that um, this the their right to hunt actually also impacted uh, on the uh, Taiwan's uh, national parks because mm-hmm. the jurisdiction, you know, the national parks are set up for you know both Taiwanese and also tourists from all country to uh, enjoy you know the nice scenery, geography, beautiful mountains. But if you're Hunting in there also there's a part of danger, and also firearms. That is 
the one of the biggest source of conflict because there are several uh, last few cases. Even uh, last year, this is a uh, man, Punun man, surname Wang Wang Guanglu. He was arrested for you know uh, hunting, for shooting some uh, you know uh, th- uh, this uh, Taiwanese or Formosan Munchak deer. And, right, uh, and have received what I, I think many see as a very heavy prison term. That's right, um, because they are using the old like, laws that's very restrictive on the mm. firearm control law. And mm-hmm. those laws were passed during the KMT, martial law era. KMT mm-hmm. are very, very much uh, is, guard against any sedition or you know, a communist uh, suppression rebels or Taiwan independence uh, groups try to uh, overthrow the KMT government. This is in the past uh, battle days. Mm. But they're still using a lot. The law is still on the books. Mm. So how the new government, new uh, the the society, uh, you know, Taiwan nation gonna be accommodate the Aboriginal right. needs? That's a big problem. And I also heard a lot from environmental groups and people who goes to the mountain. They said it's very very. Uh, they they feel dangerous if Aboriginal people are legally own uh, firearms. But mm-hmm. we cannot, and mm-hmm. it, it becomes a lot of problems. So there's a lot of issue that you know government has to deal with so many different groups and, and their interests. Mm, right. Uh, probably one other issue that is worth remembering would be the transitional justice issue uh, and uh, the call from many Aboriginal groups to have uh, their transitional justice dealt with uh, in the same batch as the martial law era transitional justice uh, and have that all done together. Of course, Tsai Ing-wen is still insisting that uh, those be dealt with separately, and some are saying that the uh, the KMT uh, transitional justice bill is much stronger than uh, what we're likely to see from the Aboriginal justice bill. Uh, but let's uh, let's move on to the final event uh, of of the week. Um, this one really touches on the sincerity question. Uh, I think sincerity, uh, whether or not Tsai issued a sincere apology, uh, that that's kind of the fundamental question for a lot of people. Is how, is is this just a political show to kind of shore up her support, or is there a real intention to deal with this set of issues? So we saw a continuation of the protests even after the apology was issued, uh, and to a lot of people's surprise, uh, on Wednesday, Tsai actually made a point of personally going out and greeting the protesters and uh, met with them for, you know, about a half an hour uh, and kind of ex- was willing to take uh, impromptu questions on her stance uh, and provide uh, her perspective and on, on why she's taking the, the policy stances that she is. Uh, Jason, how far do you think that that's going to go to, you know, convincing people that she's serious about this? I think that, that was very, very good show, uh, showing on her that she seemed too sincere, at least. Because this, uh, I have read about commentaries and political pundits. They said, yeah, Tsai Ing-wen really, uh, and the government seems to really want to, uh, at least, uh, own up what Aboriginal, this apology, and the the fact there was still protester there, she took out of her way while she was uh, uh, on her way toward an, another event that she went out and talked to them. In fact, the press report, I wasn't there, but uh, they said when she talked to one of the uh, Aboriginal singer, Banai, who's mm. uh, from the Puyuma tribe, and mm-hmm. actually she invited, oh, uh, if you're not happy, they talk a little bit and say, oh, why don't you... Uh, be part of a commission. I think that shows the sincerity. I, I, I think she really wants to touch out with the people. And uh, personally, I, I think 
you would not see like in the past administration, Ma Ying-jeou would be really he, he's out of sort of out of touch with common people. But Tsai mm. at least seemed to genuinely try to, you know, see what the, the issues and what are people complain about. Want to mm-hmm. uh, talk to the common people and uh, realize the problem, and maybe they'll try to make accommodation. So mm. it's good to see that she, you know, take. Her out of way and, uh, and meet up with uh, protesters. Mm, certainly, a very very different tone. All right, so I feel like we've covered all the main events of this week. So I, I think I'm just going to turn it over to our commentators to just give their closing thoughts on, uh, you know, so much has happened uh, on the, the Aboriginal justice issues this week. What what is going to be the lasting significance, the lasting impact of uh, what we've been seeing over the last couple of days, Jane? Well, just some academics mentioned to me the problem of appropriating Aboriginal identity. And um, as I said before, Jason probably knows a lot more about this than me. I'm coming in at this as sort of as an outsider, as mm-hmm. a foreigner who lives in Taiwan. But um, to me, the whole issue of reconciliation with the Aborigines is emblematic of a rising sense of Taiwanese identity mm-hmm. that under the KMT martial law in particular, but generally under the Chinese KMT. You know, mm. history began with the Han. Mm. It began with yeah. Zhen Gong. No, and I think Chen Shui-bian was one of the first to say that, hey, Taiwan's history actually goes thousands and thousands and thousands of years before that, mm. that Taiwan had this continuous history mm-hmm. and in continuous inhabitants. And the Han were only 400 years of what the government says is up to 15,000 years. Mm. Right? So, in other words, the fate of Taiwan's Aboriginal peoples is very closely entwined with the sense of Taiwan being a separate nation, at least for the DPP. Mm-hmm. It's got a separate mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. Things happened which weren't under Han control, as I said. And what an um, academic mentioned to me is that, you know, you have to be... They're just issues about appropriation, is that a people sort of adopting all the positives of Aboriginal identity and not taking on the suffering or not really identifying with the suffering. Mm. And what I would draw a parallel to is, say, white singers like Iggy Azalea sort of taking on all the cool things about black culture in mm. the States. Yeah. And that's very offensive to some people. Mm-hmm. And Jason could probably expand on this because you're so involved with this, but um, <laughs> I'm wondering whether Taiwanese Aborigines feel the same way and that's why they feel cynical you know, they feel is this just part of the DPP's political platform or is this a genuine attempt to come to terms with the abuses they've faced? Yeah, Jason, do you, uh, do, do you think that Jane's on to anything there? Yeah, I think uh, that's uh, quite significant. I think uh, some people said in the future, people might look back on August 1st, 2016 might be a really historic day mm. because it, it really uh, represents a watershed sort of acknowledgement of Taiwan history. Like Taiwan was the homeland of Austronesian tribes, both mm. the uh, Plain Aborigine and the Mountain Aborigine. But in the, the KMT, the Chiang Kai-shek regime, when they come to Taiwan late 1940s, they tried to wipe that identity out and mm. they imposed a uh, Chinese cultural Chinese identity on the native of this island. Mm. And I think Tsai Ing-wen and DPP, what she's done this week, is really a big transition, the new uh, cultural identity from the old regime to a new regime, the new mm-hmm. way of looking at the Taiwanese maybe nationalism or Taiwanese identity is uh, actually taking hold mm. and we're transitional to a more democratic and more... Uh, uh, a society that is more uh, acknowledgement and of the real uh, the Austronesian heritage uh, mm. and all these rich 
wonderful diverse language and culture of Austronesian peoples, mm. and I think that's quite significant. Mm. And also, it's um, that the old Chinese uh, cultural identity is a little further away, and that it, that in, a, in it's in the past, and mm. we're marching toward more progressive uh, society. All right, so uh, heady stuff that we're hearing about right there. Uh, maybe you know we always talk about uh, what we're going to be looking towards next, but uh, maybe. This is just going to be something we're going to be looking back to for a long time, uh, perhaps a, a very significant week. But uh, we are going to have to let uh, the you know the, the the historians and the judges of history kind of weigh in on that in due time. Uh, but last up for today, we're going to move on to our podcast bonus story, and we're actually kind of uh, sticking with what Jason was talking about right there in terms of the long. Uh, prehistory in Taiwan uh, involving Austronesian people and some theories that perhaps Taiwan is the center of it all. Uh, we kind of talked about, uh, well, I'll let Gavin set this up. This is this is kind of an extension of something we talked about before. We talked about it before. We talked about it before from the Japanese perspective. This was the Japanese University, the, Jap- the National Museum of Nature and Science, in fact, in Japan. And, of course, recently we talked about how they plan to have a boat journey from Yonaguni Island to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. We talked about this. And, of course, a couple of weeks ago, the members of the university research team did have a test run from one small island in Okinawa Prefecture to mm-hmm. another small island in Okinawa Prefecture. Picture. But even though it was a short run... It didn't really work out the way they went to work out. They had a, they had a, a reed raft when they did it. Mm. It was a 75-kilometer journey, and they were doing it on a reed raft. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it took slightly longer than mm-hmm. they thought it was going to take oh. because they had to stop halfway. It was structural oh. issues. <laughs> Basically, yes. Now, earlier this week, in fact, Wednesday of this week, a Japanese anthropologist was here in the Taidong area. And, of course, the Taidong area is the, the Armeizu and they were testing out a bamboo canoe in waters off Taidong. And this, this bamboo canoe, hopefully next year, they hope to sail, row this bamboo canoe from the Taidong area to Yanaguni Island mm. as part of still proving their point. This is the point that these people have, the research. They're trying to research it to prove that the flow of people from to Japan went from China through Taiwan onto Japan mm-hmm. and maybe further down through the Australasian area, the Pacific, etc., etc. So trying to prove that uh, a, a, a boat at this level of technology could make the journey. Basically, they're trying to prove that people 30,000 years ago could make a boat and sail somewhere and get to somewhere safely without the aids of compasses, GPSs or any modern navigational. And things. so this, this, this was an announcement that they made this week that they're going to try this new they journey? Were t- they were testing it out. They were actually in Taiwan this week testing it out. They mm. did, the, like I said, two weeks ago they did the one in Japan and this week they were in Taidong making the boat. They got the boat out. They, I mean, your boat was on the TV. They tested the boat out. They put it in a bit of water and they said, OK, we're now preparing for our big event next summer. And it made it. It made it through the uh, putting it in the water. So that's a that's a hopeful start. Yeah, it made it go through the water. But the actual trip next summer is 110 kilometers from Mm. Taidong to Yanaguni Island in Okinawa Prefecture. But the last test, I mean, this is the the last last, test didn't go so well. Well, the last test was going the other way. Remember, the last test, of course, was going from Japan to Japan, which means it was going from basically the east to the west. Mm. This test will be going from the west to the east. 
the mm-hmm. way they feel that the people were going back then. Mm. But of course, this is this university. Of course, do believe, like I said, that the, the people spread from China through Taiwan through Australasia to Japan, mm-hmm. etc., etc. But not everyone believes that, do they, Jason? No, uh, this is uh, this is very. Uh, I I never subscribed to theory that all these uh, like you know uh, what these people you know migrating. Uh, from there, but it, it, it it's correct in academic circle that Austronesian they are actually you know a lot of Pacific Islands and Okinawa and uh, a lot of Southeast Asia are. But I think the whole thing is quite you know just some someone uh, it's a fallacy try to prove where you come from because I have been doing Aboriginal work and I I went to Southeast Asia. You go to Philippines and Indonesia and Vietnam and Thailand. They all say, well, in this country, we take a fossil proof that we were the original people of Southeast Asia <laughs> and China also. And I think this whole thing is trying to, like, like a uh, Sinocentric uh, mm-hmm. theory saying Chinese are the master race of all the East, uh, uh, Asia and all, the, all you people. Like, if we talk to Chinese people, even in Taiwan here, mm-hmm. they say, oh, Korean, they, they were descendant from Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Japan, they are too. I, this is such a so I think it's so out of date and undemocratic way of thinking. Or uh, try to prove that you are the, the master race, and uh, and in some theory, China try to say this land where used to be ours. Uh, maybe we could you know retake because you are a descendant of Chinese. Mm. I think that's just just. Jason, the the whole point of blind nationalism is that it's blind. I mean, can't you can't you just root for the home team? Yes, it's jingoistic. Yeah, just so you know, <laughs> nationalistic. Try to prove we used to own the whole Asia. You know, at least East Asia, what China wants to prove. Mm. But anything because um, but but back to the theory itself, the test. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've seen a lot of academic papers. Some say, well, the Taiwan uh, group they they come. You know. Sailing boats all the way to Japan, but I have seen paper that says, "Well, it's actually the Japanese who came from Okinawa and they arrived in Taiwan." Well, yeah, that was the original, <laughs> the original theory. So even even if the boats make it, you're not yeah. going to be convinced, is no, what I'm hearing. No, all right. not at all. So a whole a whole lot of nothing. I see some uh, I, see, I see some shaking of heads with uh, Jane as well. Do you care to uh, weigh in on this heady issue? Um, no, I don't actually have anything to add. <laughs> I was just I was just. I thought I was nodding my head at Jason. Actually, there we so I'm go. sorry if it looked like a head shake. He's just a he's just a he's such a agreeable fellow. You were just agreeing with Jason in general. There we go. All right. Well, uh, See, it was Thor Heyerdahl that kicked all. Let this make a raft boat out of grass and sail somewhere. You see, you got Thor Heyerdahl to blame for this. That's the name. Tiki expedition. <laughs> that is the man. That is the name. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're going to leave it there. Uh, I'm sure that there will be uh, much more uh, to do about this story uh, once we come up on next summer. But for now, we've got to close out the show for today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. The show generally beginning around 8.15, 8.20, depending on the commercial load, so look for it then. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, Probably not going to make a blog post this week because it's already getting a little late. Not sure I'm going to have time, but maybe. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Good night. Uh, Jane Ricards as well. Jane, thank you. Good night, Keith. And Jason Pan, glad to have you on the show. Good night, Keith. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. 
And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.